I'm still a little bit stuck on trees this week. Some of you who weren't here last week may not have understood the implication of what Brother Grady was saying. We talked about the spring that God is bringing at this time, not only in the natural world, but more importantly, in the church, and not just this congregation, but everywhere. There's a sense that a winter is breaking and new life is budding forth. I want to look at some scriptures about trees before I delve in to what I have on my heart. If you'll help me, let's, let's turn to uh, Matthew 12, 33. Brother Daniel, you could read that if you don't mind. And somebody else, let's get Matthew 7. I want to say it's around 17, 18, 19. Somebody else want to get that for us? Grady, I nominate you. Or Brother Dan, I already got it. Grady, you're getting Luke 6, 43-ish, somewhere in that vicinity. Well, let's start with Matthew 7, 18, 19-ish. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Wow. So Jesus starts his statement with a word that should grip all of us. Beware. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. So right off the bat, he says, these creeps have good appearances. But he then goes on and says, you will know them by their fruits. So we have to contrast fruit from sheep's clothing. We have to disambiguate between fruit and sheep's clothing. He then goes on and says, you cannot gather good fruit from a bad tree. You see, Christians today have been conditioned to know people by their professions. But Jesus did not say we would know doctrine by its conformity to so-called orthodoxy. But we would know doctrine and those who propagate it by its fruit. Nor did he say beware because you can't tell them, even though they seem to have good fruits. Those who come to you and speak words that are that contrary to Christ, I would have you beware of them. Because they may be the false prophets themselves, even while they're warning of others. Anyone who tells you that a false prophet cannot be known is a liar if we accept that Jesus is true. A false prophet is discernible. A false teaching can be known. 
It will not be known by superficial appearances, but it will be known and discerned by fruit. Somebody comes to me and says, I see fruit in this place or that. Abundant life, love, the power of the Spirit, etc., etc. But I think it's a false teaching. They're either seeing something that isn't fruit, that is merely sheep's clothing on a wolf, or they've got their understanding of teaching inside out and backwards. You will know them by their fruits. He says it over and over in just that brief passage. Let's go on. Matthew 12, 33. Who's got that? Context is great. He just answered the Pharisees' charge that Jesus was casting out demons by Beelzebub. I'm going to stop you right there. Why were they saying that he was casting out demons by Beelzebub? Why was that a critical ploy, a technique of his opponents to get people to believe that he could be doing this by Beelzebub? Why? Why did they need to do that? Because these fruitless cardboard Pharisees had no power evidencing their claims. And then comes Jesus with words that bring forth conviction, with words that bring forth transformation, with fruit attesting to his ministry. And it creates this unspoken and yet obvious conclusion in the minds of the simple. They look at him and they say, Never has a man spoken this way. They look at him and they say in John 9, When has anyone ever opened the eyes of the blind? They look at him and in short they see fruit. So the Pharisees have to convince the people that this is false fruit. They of all people are the sheepskin wearers. They are the masters of appearances, but they don't have fruit. We're going to get into that in just a minute. But they are convinced, they, they are bent on deceiving the people into believing that this could be other than what their hearts and eyes and experience tell them it is proof of the working of God. So they say he's casting out Beelzebub by the ruler of demons. He's casting out demons by the ruler of demons, Beelzebub. And Jesus says, you are about to commit the unforgivable sin. When you encounter the working of the Spirit of God, and you call that the working of Satan and convince others of the same, you have committed the unpardonable sin. You have crossed some threshold wherein your pride in the rigidity of your certainty, in your orthodoxy, in your sanctimonious condescension, you know you're right. And so you're willing to put your mouth even to the working of the Holy Spirit. He says, you can blaspheme the Son of Man. 
You can hurl insults at him as a man. You could even crucify him. But if you get to the place where you're willing to deceive people and yourself by calling the work of God the work of the enemy, you have gotten to a place from which there is no retrieval. You can't get out of that. God has given you over to a depraved mind in that instance. And that's where he again asserts that the confusion the Pharisees have thrown on the people is just a ploy. The people can know for themselves. Fruit is discernible. Read on. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. So he's basically saying, uh-uh, you can't have it both ways. You can't say, this guy's casting out devils. This guy's performing miracles, but he's got a lot of problems. <laughs> You've got to acknowledge that there is something here that is undeniable. Amen? Now, we know that Jesus was not only referring to mighty works or miracles when he refers to fruit, because in Matthew 7, some will be able to say to him, Lord, we did this and we did that, and yet they didn't have the relationship with God that would have indicated salvation, amen, that would have constituted salvation. But we'll get into it even further here in a minute. So Luke 6, 43, have we already done that one? You did that one. No? Okay. Grady's got that one. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in, your, is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye while you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree For each tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. The evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Amen. So again, he says, make the tree good and its fruit good also. And he says, categorically, you cannot gather good fruit from a bad tree. That's three witnesses and two Gospels. We can go on into John and get some more, but you know the Scriptures. You can look them up yourself. I think that it's important because this cloud of mystery that false prophets would throw on God's people, where they feel incapacitated to make an assessment in the Spirit as to what they're encountering, it creates paralysis, leading to disobedience and faithlessness. But Jesus wants to give us confidence that we can know. Brother Dan, would you mind, and you free, feel free to elaborate, um, in 1 John 2.20, maybe the context as well. Um, I know in that situation, John is saying, you know, basically the same thing Christ was saying earlier, which is watch out for false Antichrists who are already in the world. And he gives us some, some guidance as to how we'll know them, etc. So John, uh, 1 John 2.20, if I said that correctly. Yes, sir. 
But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. So he starts off by saying, They went out from us, but they are not really of us. For, they, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they were not of us. But you have an anointing, and you know all things. So it would indicate to me that there's a second thing. So when we're assessing a prophet, when we're assessing a ministry, we're looking for fruit. And fruit doesn't lie. And we're going to need to disambiguate here in a minute between fruits and appearances, but we're looking for fruit. Fruit doesn't lie. If it's there, that is a proof to us right off the bat. But then there's something else that has to be in play, and that's coming from us. What is that something else that needs to be coming from us? You have an anointing, and you know. So there's, there's this recognition where the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirits, according to Romans 8. Amen? Acts 15. There's this recognition. Obviously, then there's a third element. There's got to be complete consistency with the Word of God. Isaiah, not, Isaiah 8, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, there is no light of dawn in them. John 10, the scripture cannot be broken. Jesus was constantly submitting himself to the consistency of scripture. How many times did he say that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet? That the word might be fulfilled, which says, you know all of these times, amen? So we've got, these, we've got these standards. We've got an anointing of the Holy Spirit coming from within the believer that is either recognizing, resonating with the voice of God or not, if it isn't the voice of God. Then we also have fruit in the messenger's life. We know that the devil can quote scripture. Right? We know that uh, Balaam was temporarily used both of God and of the devil. But he did not have fruit in his life. He was the prototypical false prophet. And yet the fruit that was in his life was not good. His very name means not of the people. He who separates himself. Balaam's name. Then we have the word of God. So we got fruit. We've got the Word of God, and we've got the witness of the Holy Spirit. What else? What other, what other evidences can we consider? Can I add one thing? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Just, it's just a few verses later, but it's where he says, just, it's specifically the context of it. He says, these things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you, hmm. but... The anointing which you have received from him abides in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. So he's clearly saying that this has something to do with those who would try to deceive you and how you're going to know the difference, which Amen. has been his topic for, or it goes on to be his topic. But. Amen. So in this passage, the antidote to deception is anointing. You have an anointing. 
That spirit that is inside of you that recognizes and resonates with the Spirit of God. We could get into the whole topic of resonance, but that's another discussion for another time. And yet when he says, you have no need for any man to teach you, is he not teaching when he says that? But is he teaching as one carnal head instructing another? Or is he teaching as all Scripture carried along by the Holy Spirit? The holy men of old were moved upon by the Holy Spirit when they wrote these things down, Peter tells us. So he's not saying that God is not interested in human vessels, but there's got to be an anointing behind it. They've merely got to be a conduit for something that people recognize is not man. Amen. This is why Paul could praise the Thessalonians and say, we praise you. I believe it's 2 Thessalonians 2.14 that you received our word not as the word of man, but as it is in truth, the word of God. So, First rattle out of the box, we can know. Don't let anybody freak you out that you can't know. You can know. And anyone who says otherwise is in violation of the word of truth, of the word of Jesus and John and Paul and Peter. They're in violation of the scriptures, so you need to be very careful about anything that issues forth from their mouth if they would be so careless in their handling of the truth. Now, what is the difference between fruit and appearances. Because we know he starts off by saying the false prophets, beware, look out, watch out, because they come in sheep's clothing. Can we all agree that the sheep's clothing represents appearances? Okay, what's the difference between the appearances and the fruit? In other words, if I, if I wear the right outfit, does that mean I've got the right fruit? That's a pretty scary fruit standard, isn't it? This brother said fruit gives life. That's one contrast we can draw with appearances, isn't it? Go ahead. He appointed us to bear much fruit and that the fruit would remain. So I think the longevity of the fruit is key too. He said he's quoting from John 15, bear much fruit and fruit that remains. So it can't be a flash in the pan. There's got to be a longevity to this standard. That's good also. But let's disambiguate between fruit and appearances some more. He says, fruit gives life. I might have said that once too. Fruit gives life. Do appearances give life? Do appearances, can you go walk up to uh, an appearance and pull it off a tree and take a big bite out of it and quench, quell your hunger? Do you feel energized, empowered by appearances? No. No. They don't really have much life in them. But the fruit that Jesus is speaking of, it must, right? Fruit does not rot on the tree. Fruit is something that others come and pick. And it's only as good as its ability to nourish someone spiritually. When you receive something from a ministry that nourishes you, and that's not just a flash in the pan, but it's a lifestyle. It's an environment. It's an orchard. It's a garden that never ceases bearing fruit, as another passage says both in Revelations and Ezekiel. Amen? When you have that spiritual energy 
is transmitted from this to that, from tree to person, or from ministry to person. You don't leave having your ears itched. You leave having metabolized something that empowers you for the course that God has called you to. In short, Paul said, when I come, I will test these who call themselves apostles. Because the kingdom of God is not in word and tongue, but in power and truth. So he's using the fruit paradigm even there. But instead of simply calling it fruit, he's tying into the energizing element of fruit and he's saying, I'm going to see if there is power behind their ministry. And with that, he's going to assess whether they're charlatans or legit. Amen. Paul spoke of the Corinthians as the fruit of his ministry. Because there are times where more than just taking a word and an exhortation or an example directly from a life, a whole people becomes a fruit of a ministry. You are our letters of commendation. You could say what he was really saying is you are our proof that we are legit ministers, read and known of all men. Something can be seen in the disciples of someone. Evidence can be discerned. This is for real. We all are, of course, thinking of Galatians and the fruit of the Spirit, aren't we? The fruit that cannot be produced by words, that cannot be produced by plans, that cannot be produced by manipulation, but only impartation of the Spirit by transmission of the Word that is Spirit. Isn't that what Jesus said in John 6, the words I speak to you are, and they are, well that's something different, isn't it? That's like fruit. It actually gives you an energizing in the inner man. And so, if we're looking for fruit, we're looking for the fruits of the Spirit. We're looking for the changes that should accompany righteousness that should accompany the word of his power he upholds all things by the word of his power we're looking for the kind of things that the pharisees would try to explain away and when the pharisees come and try to explain it away we're going to give them the same answer that jesus gave them you can know a tree by its fruit and they're going to say that's just appearances. And we're going to say, hmm, is that what I got in that conversation? Is that what I felt in that act of service? Is that what I experienced as the Lord nourished my soul, put salve on my eyes, straightened my crooked back, and set me on the path of his commands? Did I merely encounter some good appearances? Or could I say, that which our eyes have seen and our hands have handled, 
concerning the word of life. I encountered substance. I encountered more than self-imposed religion. I encountered the soma, the body of Christ. Yes, sir. Amen. 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 Brother Howard said in botany, fruit is defined as something that contains the seed of life for reproduction of itself. Isn't that what the Lord said in Genesis? You shall bear fruit, each one according to its kind. If we want to talk about justice as we did a couple weeks ago, it all pivots around the scripture. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Paul brings this into our behavior and he says, if we sow to the flesh, we will of the flesh reap corruption. But if we sow to the Spirit, we will of the Spirit reap life. In the same manner, if we're talking about godly fruit, there's the longevity. Even though this this piece of bark and leaf that we called a human life may die and go to heaven nonetheless the fruit that it planted in the earth will grow up as a forest of trees producing fruit according to its kind so that that immutable principle that immutable law that you're going to get what you sow you're going to reproduce that 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 is illuminating what is it let me ask you this what is it in human nature that doesn't want to acknowledge the undeniable proofs, as John phrased it, of God's power and word in the world. If I were to come into contact with Jesus today and I were to see Him at work and I were to witness and even taste and see that the Lord is good, tied to the same thing about fruit, right? Amen? You can't taste an appearance, but you can taste and see that the fruit of God is, is good. Even the Word, Hebrews 4, they have tasted of the good Word of God, he says. So what is it in me if Jesus were to be walking the earth today? What is it in me that would want to hesitate to know Him by His fruit? What, what would balk inside of me and say, mm, I'm not sure if I can be sure? Brother Howard said you'd have to submit. Somebody else sounded like Joe. Where are you? There. What did you say? You'd have to respond. You'd have to say, this is God, or this is not God. This is life, or this is death. You see, appearances describe the letter that kills. But Paul says he has made us adequate. Not that our adequacy is coming from ourselves, but from God. For he has made us adequate as ministers, not of the letter that kills but of the Spirit that gives life. And when someone encounters that, they've got to make an assessment. They've got to make a decision. They've got to call it yay or nay. 
Isn't this what Jesus was in, was, rather, isn't this what Simeon, the prophet, was speaking of when he held eight-day-old Jesus in his arms? What did he say to Mary, his mother, at the circumcision and the sacrifice of turtle doves? What did he say? He says, this child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. That the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. He's going to cause some to rise up in resurrection. That's the word that he's using there. It literally could be translated, this child is destined for the resurrection and the death of many in Israel. Some who were dead in their dead in life on the shores of Galilee heard a man walk by and say, follow me, and a resurrection began. Some were in their coffins headed through the village of Nain when a voice called through the wooden box and a hand grabbed the corpse and a resurrection began. Some were sitting in tax collector's booth and you can see them rise. It says, and he got up and followed him. But others seemed to do that very motion in reverse. They came to him requesting something and they were let down or offended by his words. Blessed is he who does not take offense, who is not offended because of me, he says in Luke 6. Even his best friend John, not his best friend, but his closest relative, his cousin outside of the company, part of a different dispensation, locked in prison, about to lose his head, sends word and says, go ask him, are you the one or do we look for another? This is a man trying to come to a decision. This is a man trying to assess fruit. Trying to come to grips with what he's encountering. And from behind prison bars with a death sentence hanging over his head at the hands of a capricious tyrant. He says he sent disciples to Jesus and, and he told them to ask him this blunt question. Are you it? Or should we look somewhere else? And in that, the second part of that question is a threat. It's a threat that someone might be about to fall. Someone might be about to get disappointed, let down, offended. And he says, go tell John what you see and you hear. Go speak from your experience. Go talk about what your eyes have seen and your hands have handled concerning the word of life and let him feel it as coming from one who's encountered it. And then he commences to declare what's happening and in doing so to quote Isaiah 35. He just picks off before the first clause. He says, the blind see, the deaf hear, the poor have the gospel preach to them. But in Isaiah 35, it begins by saying, Behold, your God comes, and the deaf hear, and the blind see, and the poor have the gospel preached. 
John knew his Bible. Jesus quoted the second half knowing John was going to fill in the first. This isn't time to look for another. This is God. It's time for you to acknowledge what you already know to be true and to put to death that fear in you that is going to try to take you down at the last moment when your faith needs to sustain. Go tell John what you see in here. And we don't hear another challenge out of John. He gives his life and Jesus honors him. Says that of all those born of women, he was the only one not born of women exclusively. He's talking about being born of the Spirit. That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. He said of all those born of women, John the Baptist is the greatest, but the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. He said he was a bright and shining light, and for a time you were willing to rejoice in that light. Amen. But Simeon said he will be for the falling and rising of many in Israel. Some heard his word and came to repentance. Other heard his, others heard his word and gnashed their teeth. And something was revealed inside of them. You can say you're searching for the real thing all your life. But when you encounter the real thing, that search is going to be proven as sincere and legit or false in a pretense. Amen. We see the same thing after he ascended in in Acts 2.38, Peter stands up and he tells everybody that you're accomplices to murder, that you killed the Lord of glory, that you have innocent blood on your hands. And what does it say? And when they heard this, they were, oh, they were cut to the heart. What's going to happen? Are they going to rise or are they going to fall? Jesus had told John, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Here we go. First big controversial message is coming forth. They were cut to the heart and they acknowledged that these men had something for them that could help them. They in short recognized that they were sent by God and they said, men and brethren, what should we do? Looks a lot like submission, doesn't it? And they began to tell them what they should do. Three chapters later, we see the exact same phrase, and they were cut to the heart. And this time it is when Stephen is ministering. Mm -hmm. Do you remember? And he's telling them of their history. If you're to compare Stephen's message to Peter's sermon, there's not a whole lot of difference. They're both pretty hard-hitting. They don't mince words. <laughs> they tell them what the problem is and what God's purpose was and and it says when they heard Stephen's words, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed their teeth and picked up stones to stone him. He shall be for the rising and the falling of many in Israel that the thoughts of many hearts might be revealed. In the moment of one of the greatest miracles that Jesus ever performed, a man came alive inside a tomb. And for the first time in human history, people saw resurrection. And in that scene portrayed in John 11 and so forth, what was the response of the Pharisees as the thoughts of many hearts were being revealed? Hmm? 
They wanted to kill Lazarus, the poor guy. I've already come back once. And they wanted to kill Jesus. Why? Because he will take away our place and our nation. When you encounter God's authority, it always is going to bring a challenge to any other authority. It stands alone and supreme, and without saying anything, it threatens all other authorities and their sources. In John 7, we're told that the Pharisees and Sanhedrin had finally reached the point where they were ready to put Jesus to death. It's like a premature murder trial which would take place later in the court of Caiaphas and Pilate and Herod. Amen? And finally they, they call the temple guard and, and they say, go arrest this man. He was speaking in the temple. And they commanded their own guard, their own police officers, I want you to go arrest this man. And so the temple guard goes to arrest him. And when they get into proximity to his preaching, they can't do it. It's like a scene taken out of the story of Saul and David. When Saul's mercenaries were going to kill David at Shiloh, and every time they got close enough to the well at Shiloh, and they'd start prophesying and come under the power and the atmosphere of faith and consecration created by David. In the same manner, the temple guard comes under proximity to Christ's teaching, and they're sitting there listening to these words that are spirit and that are life, and something is being downloaded into their souls, and they come back to their overlords and they say, we can't arrest him. They said, why have you not taken him into custody? They said, because never did a man speak like this. Because it wasn't just a man speaking. They were encountering the voice of God. The words that were spirit and that were life. And how could they put to death that which was giving them life? And the Pharisees answered them and said, Have you also been, been led astray by him? Tell us which one of the rulers of the people or the Pharisees has believed in him. But this crowd does not know the Lord and is accursed. Those who followed him, they say, were cursed and didn't know God. But look at the miracles. Eyes recovering their sight and sins being forgiven, lepers being cleansed, and cripples leaping and praising God. They said, oh no, these people are cursed. These people are living under a spell. And they challenged him and they said, which one of the rulers of the people and which of the Pharisees? In our day, we would say, which theologian or politician has become part of this? 
Give me one theologian. In John 9, they persecuted that poor guy who had received his sight. Remember? And he had just a little twinge of sarcasm. I think that he was enjoying their consternation. <laughs> they kept asking him to retell it. They weren't asking him to retell it so that they could know what was true and be stirred to believe. They were asking him to retell it to find some little minuscule fault that they could latch on to. But after he's told it like the third time, he says, do you also want to be his disciples? <laughs> and they say it again. You know, they say, this crowd is accursed and unlearned. They put him out of the synagogue. They kicked him out of their churches. And I'm telling you that the competitive authority of man that hates the authority of the Spirit of God will do and is doing the same thing today. There are people who are kicked out of an organization because they speak with tongues. Never mind their Bible, which they claim is the standard, unequivocally states, do not forbid speaking in tongues. Period. They kick people out for moving in the gifts of the Spirit. Even though Paul says, do not despise prophetic utterance. Do not quench the Spirit. They want a God that they can interpret. They want a God that does not compete with their supremacy. They want a God who is mute. How many of you know what we've taught about 1 Corinthians 12 and the mute God? That's what, that's what human authority wants. And that's why the religious authorities have always rejected the authority of the Spirit of God. That ought to be an accolade and not a challenge. Which one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him? None. Ooh, there might be something going on here. When Jesus preached and healed the people in his hometown, his own mother, brothers, and sisters came to arrest him. Mark 3 tells us, because they said, and I quote, this man has gone insane. He has lost his senses. They called him demon-possessed. They called him insane. Out of his mind. They called him accursed, one who did not know God. They said that he was filled with Beelzebub. It's because they did not love the resonance of the word of life that that unlearned, accursed crowd couldn't live without. And they did not want to be put out of the camp like that poor guy in John 9. Remember, he was put out of the synagogue. He was excommunicated. They didn't want to be thrown out of the camp, did they? After he was excommunicated, it says Jesus came to him and said, Do you believe in the Son of God? And he said, Lord, show him to me that I may believe in him. Now, we might be marveling that he didn't already know, but we should be marveling at his desire to see it 
so that he could believe. And in a manner such as he never does at any other time, Jesus simply tells him, the one who speaks to you is he. And he believed. Amen. So he was put out of one camp and he was brought into another. Amen. You see, there's a small camp of those who have no other commitment than to serve God, to follow his voice, and to go all the way. There's a small camp who, when the 25,000 leave and there's only 12 left, can only say, where else can we go? Nobody else is speaking the words that actually impart life. That small camp may get confused from time to time. They may slip up and stumble over themselves. But they don't have membership in that big camp of those totally tangled in the fear of man, of those still trying to please man. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And I like these two scriptures. I want you to read with me. Let's, let's get two scriptures here, if you don't mind. Somebody get Hebrews uh, 13, 13. Maybe some context. And somebody else... Daniel, do you want to get Ephesians 2? Let's, let's read uh, these two scriptures back to back. Let's go with Ephesians. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are afar off and to those who are near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Did you do 219? Not yet. Okay. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of Okay, that's it. Therefore, to the church, he says, you are no longer, what? Strangers and foreigners. You're no longer strangers and foreigners, but members of the household of God. Okay, now if we could get this one. Hebrews 13, 13 with some context. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city but we seek the one to come. So, we got two camps. <laughs> we got the small camp, and we got the big camp. And Jesus was taken outside the camp. They didn't even want him to die in their camp. They didn't even want to give him the dignity of dying in their camp. They wanted him to suffer 
alone, outside. Get out. Amen. And he says, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. That's leaving the camp of the Sanhedrin and going to the camp of the so-called accursed. That's leaving the camp of the 25,000 and going to the camp of the 12. That's leaving the camp of the appearances and the praises of men and going to the camp of fruit and life by the word. you got to choose which camp you belong to. Because in this new camp, you're not a stranger. Everybody's your brother, your friend. But in that camp, they have an entirely different paradigm and an entirely different Lord governing them. In Hebrews 11, he speaks of the heroes of old. He says in verse 13, All these died in faith without having received the promise. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for this reason... Amen. It goes on, verse 14, For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own, and if indeed they had been thinking of the country from which they came out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. For this reason, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. In Matthew 10, He said, if you are ashamed of me and my words in this wretched generation, I will be ashamed of you. If you're embarrassed of the small camp of life, of love, of fruit, then he is going to be embarrassed of you. And he's going to put you back in that big camp. And in that big camp, you're going to belong. If you speak According to the viewpoint of the world, the world hears you. But if you speak according to the viewpoint of Christ, you will not be heard except in this smaller camp. You see, Christianity over the centuries has blurred these camps. Universities, which were originally schools for ministers, are anything but today. Everything has been so mixed that we don't even know who we are unless the state has put some kind of stamp on us. And if not the state, then at least intelligentsia. At least those in their ivory towers of superior knowledge and learning. Well, that's receiving the praise and the sanction of that camp. That is the camp who piled up praise on a short man from Tarsus who later said, all these things which were gained to me, I count as loss in exchange that I may gain something else, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He called this a dung heap. It was a loss. It wasn't a net zero. It was a deficit. you got to choose which camp you're in. First Peter says, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. 
He doesn't, war- he doesn't urge them as people who belong. We want to be like the world. We want to be accepted by the world. Then you need to go join that other camp. Because the world loves its own, Jesus said. If, I, if you were of the world, the world would love you. Because the world loves its own. But I want you to know also that the body of Christ loves its own. Amen. The Lord knows those who are his own. And this is, in fact, how we know who the real disciples are by the love they have for each other. There's a solidarity in the small camp that you're just not going to find in this big camp. In Hebrews 11 also it says, By faith, I read this to you recently in a different context, but I want to read it again right now. By faith, Moses when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. He thought he got more life out of the slander of belonging to Christ than out of the accolades of belonging to Egypt. Jesus said, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. So there must be some rich riches to be had in that persecution. Rejoice that you are counted worthy, Peter said. But he says here, by faith, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That was his easy place in the big crowd. That's what he was, that was his fortune. That was his privilege. That was how circumstance turned in his favor. That's what he had over everyone else. And that was being foisted on him. And the word that he uses, refused, it's the same word Jesus used when he said, unless you deny yourself, it's unless you refuse yourself. Reject it, contradict it, disown it, separate yourself from it. Moses didn't want that title, just like Paul didn't want the title from his former life. He didn't want that identity. Don't call me by that. That's not what I want to be. I get more joy out of belonging to these slaves than out of being part of your royal family. Now, when we understand that, we're getting close to understanding the true Christian love of community. When we get more nourishment for our souls out of belonging to a band of slaves, than out of being labeled as a member of the royal family. I don't know what that title was. Somebody probably could tell us. But I assume it was Prince. Hmm? Prince Moshe, right? Son of Pharaoh's daughter that would seem to be a prince of some kind. We don't know what the title was, but whenever they used it, he said, don't call me that. 
Stop. That's not my identity. I don't want to be a part of this system anymore. I've seen it from both sides. And those guys under the whip making bricks out of mud and straw, they're my brothers and sisters. But Moses, don't you see the riches that you have? Don't you see the inheritance that you have? You don't have to do anything. Just grow up here in the lap of luxury. You can have it both ways, Moses. Little history with your royal title. He said he refused it. And he says he refused it by faith. We're going to be a stranger and an alien in one of these camps or the other. Which one is it going to be? Which one is it going to be? Because if you're starting to move toward God, then you are moving outside a camp. If you're starting to gain traction in your prayers, in your faith, in your understanding, then you are moving outside of the camp. But you're also moving into a camp. Amen. And it's not just the people in this room. It's everyone everywhere who has no higher commitment except to do God's will, to know his heart, to know his word, amen, and to live for him, holding nothing back, amen. Thank you, Jesus. If you're a young person, if you're a Christian, if you're learned, if you belong to a camp, you're going to have to lose that, every bit of it, in order to be part of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. And if you're embarrassed of this camp, shame on you. Shame on you for being embarrassed of the one who went outside the camp bearing the cross for you. Shame on you for not crucifying, being crucified to the world, as Paul could say, I am crucified to this camp and this camp is crucified to me. There was a time, there was a time when self-protecting Peter was terrified to be lumped in with this camp. And when that servant girl threatened, he just trembled in fear. I don't know the man. And he denied him. He did to Christ the very thing Christ had asked him to do to his flesh. Deny himself. Take up his cross and follow Jesus. But instead he denied Jesus, confessed himself, took up his pride, and walked in the snare of man, amen, that is fear. But a couple weeks later, when a mob was mocking, jeers were coming. These guys are drunk. Something had changed. Something had changed. This guy who had trembled before a servant girl, who had lashed out with the arm of the flesh in the garden of Gethsemane. Amen. This guy who had returned to the fishing nets and seemed despondent with the Lord afterwards. This guy, it says, taking his stand with the rest. That's as important to me as anything that follows. Because he's always separating himself. He's always saying he's different. I will stick with you, though everyone else. But now he, he wants to be part. So, so I'm picturing, he took his stand. So they were up there kind of on a balcony. 
overlooking the city. That's how I'm picturing it. We know it was an upper room, etc., etc., right? So maybe they're on one of those Jerusalem balconies, and somebody's in the back. Mary, what are they talking about? They're mocking me. Really? How many are out there? I don't know. There's more than 3,000. You're kidding. And all of a sudden, he pushes through and stands shoulder to shoulder with the rejected. Men and brethren, these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And the church was born when he found the camp where he really belonged. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. God, we want to encounter you. We want to hear your voice. We want to know your presence. We want to taste and see that the Lord is good. We want to partake of fruit that puts life in this emaciated, malnourished self. But when we do, we know that it's going to cause us to either rise or fall, to take our stand with the twelve or take our stand. What does he say in that same preaching? that Pontius Pilate and them took their stand against the Lord and His anointed one. Amen. I know where I belong. I know where I want to be part of. Amen. Are you embarrassed of Jesus? Amen. If there's anybody here who feels like they have struggled, they have battled, and they have at times been the slave, of the opinions of man and the praises that be of man and not of God. And they want to break that yoke and they want to shift their allegiance. I want you to raise your hand. Nobody's going to see. Just keep your heads bowed. Just raise your hand. Amen. You can put it back down. Lord Jesus, we want to come to you now recognizing the one who went to us outside the camp. And we want to call out the coward in us that wants to stay in the camp of those accepted by men. But we know that that which is highly esteemed by men is an abomination to God. So God, we're asking you to give us the courage. The courage to hear truth. The courage to receive truth. To resonate with truth. To know the fruit that would evidence the truth and to partake of it. God, I ask you to give us the courage to walk out of one camp in a spiritual walk in steps of faith that happen inside the mind and heart and move into another camp to take our stand with the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. With the persecuted flock of God. Amen with those who are rejected by the world, but accepted by the Lord, with those who are aliens in this strange world, but at home in the house of God. In Jesus' name, I ask you to help us to shed that panicky fear that worries we won't be accepted by men, and instead help us to revel in the acceptance we have with each other and with you in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Jesus.